What would we do without songwriters, without the worlds they create and bring into our lives, without the lyrics that give expression to our emotions? And where would we be without the melodies which inspire us to great heights? Welcome to Season 3, Episode 2 of Song Chronicles. In today's rapidly changing world of content and content creation rights, songwriters have had to step out from behind the curtain and advocate for the incredible work that they do. And in today's episode, I speak with a songwriter who has done just that, Michelle Lewis. Michelle has written for artists like Cher, Sean Colvin, Hilary Duff, Kelly Osbourne, and Amy Grant as well as making her own albums and composing and performing for film and television. An Emmy Award-winning songwriter, she is one of the co-founders of SONA, Songwriters of North America, an advocacy organization fighting for the rights of songwriters. In today's episode, we talk about her background and experiences in the industry prior to the world of streaming and how the changing landscape of how music is monetized transformed her into an advocate for music creators. Michelle gives us a deep dive into how important it is for songwriters to have a seat at the table. Join me in welcoming Michelle Lewis to today's episode of Song Chronicles. Thank you for doing this. I'm so happy to do it. Wouldn't it be great if you could do a brain dump on all this stuff that you have learned over the last decade? I can let this go. I said that to somebody today and she got teary-eyed. When you're in the throes of doing things and trying to juggle your life, it's sometimes hard to get a read of the effect of what you're doing. Totally. I didn't really know any of this until eight years ago. And we started Sona in 2015. And that was really the beginning of my journey in learning all of this. Like this is a really new knowledge set for me. And it was a really steep learning curve. Before that, I had been making a living as a songwriter for two decades and knew none of it. It's amazing. We're going to talk about your work with Sona. I want listeners to know how badass you are before you ever did that and still are because you had a recording contract with Giant Records and you were an artist and you jumped into working with other artists and writing songs for them. So you've had success as a songwriter, as a writer for other people. And now TV and doing shows and Right Girl. And that has been just the most amazing experience. I think that was before Sona. It was, yeah. And so, you know, the first thing I lead with when I talk about Right Girl is that 100% of the girls that go to Right Girl go to college if they want to. Like if they apply, they get in. And I mean, I have chills talking about that. And I was working as a singer, songwriter, doing everything I could possibly do to make a living doing music. There was a gap in that kind of mentoring for teen girls at the time. Pair professional women writers with teen girls who didn't necessarily want to be writers as their career, but they needed help and mentoring with communications through writing, with written communication. Like, And I'm finding that, I mean, it's funny because that I can relate that to Sona because... 
there was a gap in advocacy for songwriters when we filled that gap. So Karen filled the huge gap that existed for, you know, more at-risk communities for girls in Los Angeles to help them get their, their written communication skills up to a level of the kids that had more in communities with more resources. Karen had real equity endeavor. It was really to provide some equity because there was just such a difference between the way kids were communicating and getting into college. Like what a piece of data that is. What an amazing legacy to have. So yeah, right? Every, Every girl that wants to go to college goes, unbelievable. And it's not songwriting based, it's all kinds of writing. Songwriting is just one of like 12 kinds of writing they teach during the year. Even calling it teaching is like too pedantic. It's really a life experience with a professional woman writer who does that for a living with a teen girl who needs to grow as a communicator. So they do journalism, they do novel writing, they, I mean, fiction, they do poetry, they do screenwriting, all different lanes of writing. I started doing the songwriting one literally 20 years ago. It's a workshop, Saturday workshop, where all the teen girls gather with their mentors. And then someone who is a professional in that type of writing comes and leads you through it. And as you know, Louise, on the songwriting day, we get you know, maybe 60 or 70% of the girls have never written a song before in their lives. So we just teach them the basics of lyric writing. They, you know, they're scared. They're, they think there's some like magic to it. They think you have to be a great musician. We sort of pull the curtain back on all of that. And we just go, no, you just have to write from your heart, write personally, write your experience. And then where the professionals come in is then we turn those words into a song and we perform them at the end of the workshop and they cry, they scream, minds are blown. You know, it's one of those things that it's like, it is the best day of the year. It is amazing. So let's walk through that particular day, the moment, just so people understand how this works. How do you perform a song when they've just written it? So all the professionals are on a stage and the girls who have written and worked with their mentors earlier in the day are in the audience, often with their parents, right? Mm-hmm. Their moms or their, both their parents are there. Mm-hmm. And you or Karen or one of the volunteers will hand us maybe three lyrics, just like yes. randomly. Here's a song. It's on like a sheet of paper, right? Like it's on like a, a thing with eight lines on it. And right. we've had the girls transfer from their journals, those eight lines onto the sheet of paper. And then they hand you the sheet of paper and go, have fun, like Godspeed. <laughs> First of all, the talent of the women in there that they are able to take a lyric, like a cold reading, you know, for uh, amazing actors. They take a lyric, and suddenly there's an incredible melody, song structure, performance, and it just sounds like something. And of course, the people who have written on this piece of paper and have never written a song in their life, and then they hear it perform that well in front of them, their life story, their struggle, their whatever is it's sounding like this. I have had the blessing of being a part of that amazing Saturday many times. So tell us about Amanda Gorman. So I guess maybe like eight years ago now, she was a high school student, high school in Los Angeles with her twin sister. And she and her sister came to all the workshops and they were very committed to it. I mean, they were, they were shower uppers. So I remember 
I remember her because she was always, I remember Amanda in particular because she was so ready to jump up on the soapbox. And there's a thing called soapbox that they do at every workshop where in the before times when they were in person, it was literally a box that they would stand on in front of a microphone and just go off. Now it's a square on the Zoom but they end that they raise their hand for it. And you can spell it off on something, a rant, uh, uh, you can read a poem. It's just sort of like an extemporaneous moment for these girls and it makes it freeing for them. Like the first time they could just be handed a microphone and say whatever's on their mind and people will listen. And I remember Amanda being like already the queen of the soapbox, like just getting up there and having something always poignant and interesting and righteous to say. So I remember her from when she was little, like from when she first started. And then I think in her senior year, this was at the songwriting workshop. It was the junior year or senior year. It was the year Eric Garland was killed. And in New York, he was brutalized by police. And, you know, his last words were, I can't breathe. And she wrote, she wrote lyrics because it was a lyric writing workshop. She wrote lyrics with that refrain. And in this way that you've already described, where she writes it on a piece of paper, the piece of paper gets handed to someone that piece of paper got handed to this singer-songwriter named Kyler England, who had her guitar and just started singing the words. And I cry thinking about it. It was one of those things where we were all just like sobbing. We we're all just sobbing. Like we have to find video of it because it was one of the most extraordinary moments. Like you just knew, you just knew. That's incredible. Thanks for expressing all of that. It's really good to get an infusion of remembering how great Right Girl is. And Karen, by the way, is spelled K-E-R-E-N. Google Karen Taylor and Right Girl. Just the most amazing experience. So let's get into Sona. But before we do that, you know, you got this chutzpah about you. (laughs) And I wondered how you grew up with... Let's just say I come by the yenta-ing, the connection of people very naturally, right? Jewish from New York, big family, very progressive and civil-minded. My parents were both musicians. My dad, he actually died when I was pretty young. I was 20 when he died. He was in Frank Sinatra's band. He was actually the tenor player in Frank Sinatra's band. He was tenor saxophone player amazing Um, yeah so i grew up around cats not animal cats but you know the musician kind of cats um you know i was a little kind of mascot of the cats sometimes i would go on tour with them and my dad would bring me on the road with the sinatra band it was crazy that life experience was insane and then the other crazy life experience is that my mom was also a kind of cat she was a session singer in new york in like 70s and 80s and a lifelong singer singer like you know sight reading perfect pitch all that stuff coming out of the jazz world i think she you know was in betty goodman's band until she had me and then i came along early 70s and then grew up in that new york world of this is going to resonate with about five people but the musicians union would meet at the Roseland Ballroom. Members of the Musicians Union would go meet and they would call out for, you know, I need three tenor players and two altos for Saturday. You know, everyone would run up to the mic with their date books and fill in dates for club dates. And my dad would bring me to that when I was three. So I literally, you know, was raised in this like kind of feral cat community. I love that. Feral musician cats, yes, completely. 
which is probably, you know, part of when it came to going to college, I chose something really academic because I was like, I got the music part. You know, I feel like I, I know how to do that. And it was in college that I really got a sense of social justice and um, civil rights. I was at Columbia when we were trying to get the administration to divest from South Africa. And there were all kinds of social justice things going on. The Women's March in Washington in 1990, marching for reproductive freedom as an 18-year-old. And I can't believe we're back to doing that now, you know. But that's where my social justice and, and advocacy was forged. And then music was in there, but I think I just needed a break from it. And then as soon as I graduated, I was thinking I'd go to med school or I'd go to business school or do something sort of schooly. And I had to start writing songs again. And there was nothing else I wanted to do, really. When we met, I think we wrote a song once and you were going to have a baby shortly after. Mm -hmm. You know, you're doing all of this and being mommy at the same time. Yes, he's 15 now and he's a cat. I ended up like basically my spawn is a cat. He is a jazz guitar player, total little freak. He plays his ass off. It's weird. He's got the improvisation gene that I I have, but I don't really lean on as much for this kind of pop songwriting thing I do. Um, My son is total, total cat. It's bread in the bone, as they say. It is. That's fantastic. So eight years ago, you started Sona. And you have a lot of people on board who have been committed. I'm just going to say it's a long list of people who are on the board. I can just tell you the origin story of Sona is, as I said, I started writing songs right out of college, was writing for myself, and some of those songs would get cut by other people. As I kind of matured as a writer, found that I could really do that in that kind of more professional way, rather than just sort of, you know, for myself. And that became my profession. So I stuck to that professional songwriter lane. And I had hits in that era of where you could make a living as a professional songwriter. Come 2015, though, I got to experience, you know, what it was like to have a song on a record that sold millions of copies. I got to experience what it means, album sales, what they add up to and, and all that. And then, you know, towards the late, you know, oddies, 2008, 2009, that's when we really started feeling the effects of YouTube, right? Of being able to get music and consume music for free. So that pulled the sort of the bottom out of the music industry. The music industry the value of it dropped from, you know, something like 33 billion annually to like 12 billion annually. And that was across all genres, all kinds of music, all formats of music. So it was artists and songwriters and labels and publishers who got, you know, completely destroyed by this new technology. Then as it started building itself back up, through streaming. Streaming became this great way of consuming music. A few years into that, we found we found that songwriters were not participating in that revenue the way they had been with earlier formats. And so that's a fancy way of saying around 2015, my friends and I, we started checking out our statements and we're like, what the fuck is going on? We are basically like, my hit in 2015 is worth a fraction of what my hit in 2005 was worth. Does that make sense? Same amount of work. Yeah. Completely devalued, worth so much less money because of the lack of mechanical royalty. You know, you would still get your performance royalties from your PRO, your ASCAP, your BMI, your CSEC, you know, as a writer in the US, but 
terrestrial radio is kind of on the way out format, really what's coming in such a huge wave is streaming. And streaming just doesn't pay songwriters the way any of the other formats did. And there's a bunch of reasons. We could get in the reasons, but what we found in 2015 that just sort of sparked us into action was literally looking at our statements and being like, what the fuck is going on? And so it was like Shelly Pikin, Pam Shane, um, like work wife Kay Hanley, Adam Dorn. The original seven were Jack Kugel. And then of course with Dina LaPolt, who's this amazing attorney. So there were seven of us in 2015. Yeah. So I've been to some of your meetings. And so I want to slow you down a little bit because people may have questions that are a little more rudimentary before the fine tuning. First of all, let's just explain a PRO is a performing rights organization, PRO versus a publisher. So I didn't really understand any of this, like I was saying, until I started Sona because This is all sparked by, you know, up until a certain point, you're just getting paid, you're going along, you're doing your thing. And it's like, you just want to write songs. You don't want to look under the hood. You just want to do the thing you're good at. So it doesn't take a law degree. It doesn't take a whatever to know this stuff. You just have to look under the hood for a minute. Mm -hmm. The difference between a PRO and a publisher, the PRO, the performance rights organization like ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, and GMR in the United States, they... You know, when you go into a restaurant and there's music playing in the background or a store or or the radio, you're listening to the radio and songs come on that you love every time. It's like the music in the air, right? The music that you hear that you don't select. Somebody else does it for you. It's being programmed by somebody else. But when they select that music and they play it out into the world, that is a performance that is considered a performance. So it's public performance, right? Every time that happens, it's a little piece of the royalty that gets added up into your PRO, into your account. And if you have a hit, that adds up to a lot of money. So when you hear about the cha-ching of having a hit, oh, your song's on the radio, cha-ching, the cha-ching, a lot of times it has to do public performance, teeny, but it does add up to being played all around the country, all around the world. It adds up to a decent amount of money. Same with if your music is played on television, on like a network or a cable station and people watch that show, it's aired, it's your, there's your music in it. That's another little piece of a royalty, a cha-ching moment that happens that adds up. And then quarterly at ASCAP, I think monthly at BMI, you get a statement, you get a check, mailbox money. Well, you know what? Calling it mailbox money is not fair because that makes it seem like it's extra money. This is the songwriter's living, is that public performance money. That's one part of the money that we get. The other part is publishing. Publishing is kind of literally what it it says. It's like the reproduction of your song. And it is associated with copyright like that you wrote the lyrics and the music, if you wrote original lyrics and music from your brain, from your heart, that's all yours. Every time that gets reproduced on a record, well, it started with piano rolls. That's why it's called a mechanical because piano rolls are this mechanical device. So starting with mechanicals with piano rolls, every time that gets replicated, then, you know, LPs, tapes, cassettes, uh, dats, whatever. CDs, you get a little piece of a mechanical royalty for that 
replication. And that is publishing. So there's your public performance and your publishing. They're both for your copyright. And that is a songwriter's living. Well, question with digital, does that count as a reproduction? That was the conversation. You're very smart. That was the conversation, right? Like, is it a public performance or is it a reproduction? The way the MMA, the Music Modernization Act that passed, the way the win that we got is that yes, there is. It's almost like a rental. You're not buying a new copy of that song, but you're renting it for your one listen. Yes. And so that's why it's such a small amount, right? Like when you see what people get paid per stream is point, right? So there's a decimal point and then there's a zero and a zero. And then there's a number. You're getting a hundredth of a penny per stream um, every time because it's one person opting to listen to your song, you know, at that time. But there is a tiny piece of a mechanical in a stream. So here's an interesting thing. You say it's a rental, but previous to streaming, you paid for a download at 99 cents or whatever it was. It still was a rental because you didn't own the rights to the song. It was only for you to listen to. You couldn't sell it to somebody else. You just owned the ability to listen to your song as much as you wanted to listen to it. You never owned it anyway. So for them to say, we're paying you very little because you don't own it, you're just renting it. It's like Newspeak or something. It's not a justification for the massive reduction in pay. But the public has decided Mm -hmm. that they love streaming. We love streaming. Best. Yeah. I love that I can make playlists. I love that I can send a playlist. It's, I love that it's not taking a room on my hard drive and it's on demand. And so we all love our streaming and we like it that way. And so we're not going to go back. I'm going to bring up things I remember from your town hall like five, maybe six years ago. The laws that are in place for this super modern technological world that we live in and stream were made over 85 years ago. And the laws were written for the world of piano rolls. The fact that the streaming companies saw a loophole where it's basically the Wild West where, okay, there are no real estate laws. So let's just claim all this like open land as ours. Let's just say we own it because there are no laws to decide. So then Sona, which is Songwriters of North America for our listeners, you may find other Sonas, but it's Songwriters of North America. Sona decided that there's people taking advantage of the fact there are no laws that relate to the world as we live in today. And songwriters are getting screwed and we have to create these laws. So... Just to clarify a little, it's two different things. You know how I was saying there's the two ways, there's actually three ways, but where we didn't get into is sync, right? There's three ways that songwriters mainly make money. You can argue that there's maybe a little more than that, but for the most part, it's your public performances through your PROs, through your publishing with your publishers, if you're self-published or through your publishing and through sync. And a sync, which you probably know, as well or better than I, is when your music is synchronized to a visual through something like on television or on a movie or even like a YouTube video. Everything visual that has music with it is synced. And so the license to put the music with that video is called a sync license. And there's a payment, there is a fee associated with that sync. And that is the one part 
So will you say that a songwriter's income is 75% regulated by the U.S. government? The 25% that we're talking about that is not regulated, that's what it is. It's the sync. That is a free market negotiation. So if I want to use your song in my TV show, there's no law I can lean on to say like, well, because the law says you have to give me that statutory rate. You say, I want 20000 I say it's a free market negotiation. We negotiate, we come up with a fee. It's not prescribed to us by a law. Everything else, all the other ways we make money, publishing, PRO money, that's all dictated by copyright law. Does that make sense? Right, and copyright law is based on a period of time that preceded the realities of how right. music is consumed today. Exactly. So, right. Copyright law was like the laws of copyright were written, you know, in the early 1900s based on piano rolls. The first Copyright Act was like 1909. The Department of Justice deals with ASCAP and BMI specifically in the U.S. to prevent antitrust, basically antitrust behavior. So because ASCAP and BMI both have ASCAP has 40% of the songwriters in the U.S., 45%, and BMI has like 40%, and then the rest of the 5% are CSAC and GMR. I think GMR has under 100 writers. Global Music Rights, that's Irving Azoff's private PRO. So, but ASCAP and BMI, because they have most of the writers in the United States, they're considered like monopolies. So there is a consent decree, which, what is it? A judge gives you a, like your own rules of the road that you have to stay on. Otherwise you're violating antitrust laws. I know when I talk about consent decrees, I feel people's eyes rolling in the back of their heads. It is so not what you want to be thinking about. It's so not sexy. But yes, antitrust law in the United States completely governs and represses how much money PROs can charge. So it's not a free market. It is not a free market. Okay. So that is the one part. And that is like, again, dating back to the 1940s. I think ASCAP got its consent decree in 1941 and BMI got theirs in 1943. And those were basically given by the Department of Justice to allow the fledgling radio market, and it wasn't even that fledgling, it had power at the time, to grow um, without having to pay songwriters much money. Right, okay. So the MMA, Mm -hmm. explain what that meant when that passed. So you very rightly pointed out that like, what is a stream? Is it a reproduction? Is it a performance? What is a stream? The MMA, one of the most modernizing things that the Music Modernization Act does is codify what a stream is. A performance and a mechanical, that formula is kind of determined in this way. The rate is set on the mechanical side. It is set by a tribunal, <laughs> like these words, by a tribunal of three. You asked for my brain dump. Here's the brain I, dump. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> so there's something called the Copyright Royalty Board, which is basically three judges in DC who set the rate for five-year periods on mechanical royalties. That's the publishing. They like basically determine the publishing rate for all of songwriters and publishers in the United States for five-year periods. So I don't know if you heard about this win that we had recently. Did you hear about the CRB ruling that we got a raise? We went from 10.1% of streaming revenue to 15.1% of streaming revenue 
over the last five years. And then over the next five years, we're going to go from 15.1 to 15.35, which doesn't seem like much of a bump, but each percentage point is actually hundreds of millions of dollars. So we're getting a raise through the CRB, the Copyright Royalty Board. Those are the three judges. It wasn't a law that passed. It was a ruling that they made to grant this raise. They basically are forcing the digital service providers like Spotify, Amazon, Apple to pay. Instead of paying 10.1% of their annual revenue pool, they now have to pay 15.1% of their revenue pool. It's a decent job. Amazing. So a couple more questions. Let's say you're having this brain dump and you're like, I just can't think about this stuff anymore. Okay. (laughs) Somebody's getting out of college and they want to be a songwriter advocate. What is the job description? Here's what I want you to know. And here's your job. Let's say they're outraged. They get out of college and they go, that's ridiculous. Why are songwriters paid so little? Why are we paid less than the actors, the singers, people of the record deals? There's a thing about the invisibility of songwriters. Those words come out of someone else's mouth. It's like the script writers or the speech writers behind behind the politicians. Your life experience, your heart and soul. It's your hard work. There's a lot of skill involved. It's your skill. Yeah. What would you tell a new breed of musical activists? What's their job? To not accept the status quo at face value. Like the reason I think it was a bunch of like older broads that started ringing the alarm at Sona is because we knew apples to apples. It was those of us who had hits before streaming who saw what a hit was worth after streaming who went, hey, that's not okay. Anyone who's had a hit in this era of streaming is kind of gaslit to believe that that's all there is and that you can't really make a living as just a songwriter. You have to be on the master and you have to like, you know, participate. You have to hustle to participate in all other kinds of ways in all different kinds of income. You can't just be a songwriter anymore. And so what I would say to young songwriters who want to really just hone their songwriting skills is like, well, don't (laughs) because you won't make a living that way. But also know that that's not normal. Like you should be able to make a living as a songwriter. You shouldn't have to, you know, do like screenwriters don't have to, you know, be the actor as well. Right. They don't have to act in the in the movie which is sort of the analogy right like if the recording artist is like the actor the songwriter is like the screenwriter but now the songwriter actually has to be like the actor you know the recording artist as well be the producer you know do all the things to be able to cobble together a living so what i would say to young music creators is yeah like hone other skills but also fight don't just accept that songwriting has no value because it's the thing it's the thing that everything else is based on it's the first part of the chain right without the song like what's the recording artist going to record what's the record label going to put out what's the publisher going to publish it what's the digital service provider going to provide there's nothing to do without the song so i feel like if there was anything i would evangelize about is to put songs and songwriters first in this conversation and don't water it down with a lot of blizz blast about you know hustling and and make it and you know whatever fight fight 
for the mm-hmm. value of the work. And where do you go to fight? The DOJ? What's the I inroad? The inroad is like through advocacy organizations. Your PROs do a really good job of getting the word out to their members. Sona, you know, NSAI, the Recording Academy. There's 100 Percenters, which is a new group that just popped up that is doing really great work, particularly for younger songwriters, because they really understand the the struggle, you know, there's some really good advocacy organizations, NSAI, you know, Bart Herberson is like the general, he understands the legislative battles that are actually winnable. I mean, I really look to him. If he says something can be won, can be done, I believe him. That's a good thing. That's a good Mm -hmm. trait. Yeah. Um, So as someone who has been in the music business so long, there's a couple of terms I still don't completely understand. And I'm Mm -hmm. going to ask you what they are since I have your attention. Explain neighboring rights. So remember how you were saying before, so let's just by radio, let's just be specific, terrestrial radio. So that's the radio that has like a dial, you know, where you have the call letters and that kind of thing. Satellite radio is different. It's paid in a different way. So like Sirius XM, different beast from like the dial based radio. Right. So that kind of radio, you were saying it before, does not pay the recording artist. It only pays the songwriter. It only pays the publisher and the songwriter, the the PROs. Because I think the deal was struck back in the 40s that like songwriters have nothing to gain from radio. You know, they're, they're, they don't, they're not putting out albums. They're not, you know, there's the only way to make a living for songwriters is through performance royalties. So they weren't able to make that promotional argument for songwriters. It's, we know it's bullshit, right? We know that the promotional argument is totally bullshit. And the Recording Academy has been fighting for that terrestrial radio right since Sinatra, like literally since Frank Sinatra, they've been trying to get that royalty for the recording artist for the sound recording through terrestrial radio. Where neighboring rights come in is that the United States is one of the only countries along with North Korea and Iran that don't pay a radio right to performing artists. Everywhere else in the world, every other country collects royalties for the sound recording to the owner of the recording and to the artist. That, as you can imagine, if you do some quick math, is worth hundreds of millions of dollars that is being collected because a lot of the music is made here in the United States. So those neighboring rights are being collected in the world and they exist and you have to actually find a way to get paid those royalties that are like accrued in Brazil, right? Brazil is a great, you know, terrestrial radio market. If you're a performer on, you know, if you've had any hits over the last however many years and you're a performer on any of those songs, there's a pot of money waiting for you in these countries. They administer them through the SAG After Fund. There's this organization called IAFAR. I forgot what that stands for, but IFR, which also administers neighboring rights. There's quite a bit of money out there for people who have performed on the songs that they've written. For performance, for recording artists that out in the world based on that terrestrial radio right that we don't get. So our PROs, like... ASCAP is not going to send a check for my neighboring rights. I have to collect it elsewhere. You can collect it through Sound Exchange. You can collect it through IFR. You can collect it through SAG-AFTRA. There are a bunch of ways you can collect it, but no, it's a different right from, from what the PROs collect. And actually, it's not that ASCAP doesn't want to collect it for you. They cannot because they're prohibited by their consent decree from collecting it. 
15 years or 20 years ago, is that money still sitting somewhere? It depends on the country. In France, they never liquidate. So the money that's sitting, maybe it's awesome, might still be there. So it sort of varies country to country. And this is for the artist, not the songwriter. Exactly. This is for the performing artist. And not just the artist, but the musician, the background singers, the producer, anyone who participated in the making of a sound recording has money. Now, is this only when digital distribution came up? Because I know that when I upload a song to my DSP provider, you know, let's say it's DistroKid mm-hmm. or you know, Dreamcore or whatever it is. They didn't used to do this, but now they want to know who produced, who was Mm -hmm. the leader on the arrangement, who engineered. And so Mm -hmm. all these people can get paid Mm -hmm. because their names are in there. And it doesn't take money out of the songwriters or the artists. It's just imagine if there was a whole other royalty right that was getting paid to the performer. That's that. Because there is in other countries. But as somebody who's been a recording engineer their whole life, and they're on tons of records out there, and they don't know about this, and they've got grandchildren, and they want to pay their medical bills, where are they going to find their money? The SAG after slash AFM, which is the American Federation of Musicians, it has a fund. You have to go ask for it? Literally go to the website and look for your name. Okay, got it. So there you go, people. You can send us a thank you note. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so interesting. I mean, during the pandemic when people were really like hurting and and worried and all this all this stuff about, you know, revenue streams, you know, how they were gonna pay rent, we did a lot of work around getting every dime in the door. So we held a lot of webinars and workshops on finding that, you know, those neighboring rights funds, the the unmatched royalty funds, like all these sort of black boxes that exist globally of unclaimed money that might actually have your name on it. Yep. And it's like, whoa, where'd this yeah. come from? In a black box somewhere. Okay. So this is all super helpful. What mm. is fair use? So this is way more of a lawyer question. I haven't gotten into so much fair use, but I know for like YouTubers and people who deal with video content and stuff like that when they get like these DMCA warnings that they might be infringing on DMCA copyright law, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, that's where it's from. And this was sort of the rules of the road around what you can use on these new digital platforms, which at the time are new now or not, like YouTube or whatever. And like if if I'm I'm a video streamer and I'm playing Fortnite and I want to have my favorite you know, Death Cab for Cutie song on in the background while I'm, you know, I want to like, I want to score my streaming with a song, a favorite song. Um, I can't just use it, right? I can't just like throw it on there. If I wrote it, then yeah, okay. Or if I license the rights to it, I can, but that's a sync, you know, in the copyright world that is considered a sync. So it falls out of the purview of fair use. There are things that are considered fair use. I think if you use it for like a very short amount of time for education, but fair use, that is definitely a blind spot for me because I am not a streamer. Actually, YouTube has this feature where it recognizes, it says, oh, we recognize this digital piece of information and it diverts money and goes and pays the person. YouTube says we're going to go and pay a part of zero point 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 one part of a penny to the oh. owners 
of those songs. So that's convenient. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I'll put up a podcast with music from the artist in it and a part of it will be muted and mm. says you don't have rights. So we're silencing that. Right, uh, right. Like you can't use Desolation Row, but it, it diverted the money to the proper mm -hmm. owners of those songs. So I think in an educational aspect, my understanding, and I could be completely wrong, is yeah. fair use is... If it's for non-commercial use, right? If you're not making money off of that use in some kind of, you're not selling something. If you want right. to donate any money or write me a review, that would be yes. great. But it's a labor of love. Yeah. Yes. So, okay. I think I've covered all the, the main questions with all of this. This has been so incredibly eye-opening. I will also say, if you do kind of have that, if you're out there, I'll just say, I'm really looking for my replacement. Like, I want to put it out into the world. Like, I'm looking for someone to take the Sona ball and run with it. I feel like we've created this great community. We have this structure. We have a brand. We are respected and known in D.C., you know, on the Hill, among all the trade associations. Like, we exist and we are at the table. But I have a show that I created that I'm trying to, like get finished with the first season of and I am you know I've done this I'm eight years in as totally as a volunteer and I feel like the next battles are going to be like monetizing TikTok the metaverse video games Roblox all that stuff like you know so much music is going to be consumed on these platforms and we were late to those conversations with the streamers with spotify and pandora and apple that was a problem the next frontiers are here and it would be great for people with skin in that game to participate in these conversations more so than me because i'm like i'm done like i gotta put out the door like i'm going to write my show I mean, I'm here for the fight, but I would love to find a music creator who's relevant, who, you know, loves the job, who's passionate about the job enough to fight for it and also has that kind of policy brain and can educate and fight for it, not just, you know, on TikTok or whatever, but like in D.C., yeah, you need a legal business brain and a creative brain. And this is a good point here. Part of the reason that creators have been able to be so easily gaslit, because we love what we do. We would make music if we were not paid a penny to it, because this is what we were put on the planet to do. We have to tell right. our stories. We have to speak our hearts. We have to make music. It's energizing. It's better we than any medicine they could give you. I think in lyrics. I think in rhythm and rhyme. Like my brain... If I'm left to my own devices and I don't try to talk about copyright, first thing when I wake up, I'm not thinking about that. I have songs in my head, you know, unfettered. My brain goes to music. I get you, it. Get, you totally yeah. get it. So it's weird to have this policy brain too. I mean, it might've been because I went to Columbia and I talk, you know, I have some attorneys in my family and, you know, policy people in my family. And I kind of grew up talking about this there's, stuff. There's gotta be, there are others. Yeah, there are others. And yes, this is a thing. When I saw you, I was like, I wanted to not do the podcast for a while and give myself a rest <laughs> and, and, and finish my record. But I felt they need to hear Michelle. Yeah, here's the thing. You know, all I want to do is work on my song. All I want to do is exactly what our kids are doing. want to like set up a camera 
play a song, yes. make a little video and share it with the world that day. Yes. That is energy back rather than, you know, being in the business brain, answering emails and having to go to meetings. But shit has to get done because if we don't fight and bring, a, you know, tie a bow around it, present it in a way that people can understand what is going on, because it's when it's behind closed doors and nobody understands. I mean, your point was how people who don't know what it was like before mm-hmm. will just think it's fine. And it's going to get into a whole other area with virtual reality. That is a question. So is digital real estate real estate? If you can't physically step in it, but you're spending three hours there and people are, you know, able to advertise in that space, you're yeah. spending three hours. Maybe it is real estate. If you're hearing I a mean, song in the metaverse, it's still being reproduced. Right. You're still hearing it. It's still a performance. And if you're using it on demand in the metaverse, then it's a mechanical or there should be, there could ostensibly be a mechanical. What is an NFT? Is that a mechanical? Like there are all these questions as technology advances, which it will, that we need to be a part of the answers to, because that's the problem with streaming is that, you know, we weren't there. We missed, we weren't at the table when those bits of pie were being handed out. We weren't seated yet. So we, that's why we ended up with the smallest piece. That's a very excellent point. So you brought up NFTs, non-fungible tokens. How does that relate to the creation of music? It's usually that there's music associated with the visual work. Like if you attach a piece of original music to the visual, it could be a separate right that goes along. Is it a sync? I think conceptually it is sort of that, but it's, I actually don't fucking know. Like, <laughs> it's a whole area where money can be made and probably isn't quite yet. But yeah. we're not at the, you know, we need to be at that table with people who care and know and all that stuff. It's like, oh my God, this is a great example of how, how songwriters can have their lunches eaten. You know, if we're not a part, what is it? If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. (laughs) That is so good. That is so good. All right. So I think this is a good place to stop, but I will say check out Doc McStuffins and Bambi. Oh my God. Well, I I have newer stuff than that. So, so the thing I won, the thing I won the Emmy for is a show called Julie and the Phantoms. It was a live action series on during COVID that like teenagers just just loved. And I'm really proud of that song that was in the series that, uh, that we ended up winning an Emmy for, which was really nice. So there's Julie and the Phantoms. There's The Loud House, I've been nominated for Emmys for that show, and that's still going on. Um, There's Ada Twist Scientist on Netflix. There's We the People. There's Vampirina. I've done a lot of shows. That's amazing. And when you were doing songwriting, you were doing a lot of genre bending. You know, you weren't in a box. And so doing film and television really gives you an opportunity to express all your musical. It's the best. Yeah. It's the best. There's no genre we have to stick to. If this if this scene calls for a, you know, 60s surf rock song, we write a, a 60s surf rock song. If another scene calls for, a, you know, EDM number on there, you know, at a Halloween dance party and we want to write something kind of EDM-ish, we do that. Like, it's so fun. 
That's so great. I love that. Since we're talking about film and television, there's one thing I didn't bring up, which I could probably fill in, give your voice a break. But for people who don't know, thinking often, if you're a songwriter, you work with a music supervisor. So Mm -hmm. if there is a production, they will usually hire a music supervisor whose job is to find music that fits certain scenes and, and cues in the piece. And their job is also to make sure that it's within the budget, that they can get the song within the budget. You know, sometimes if you hear the Rolling Stones and something, you know, they have a big budget. I find a lot of the companies, because there's a big volume of stuff being made for film and television, that they want to do it quick and they want to do it cheap. And also there's a lot of competition. You know, everybody wants to get on film and TV. So often they will ask you, is it pre-clear? And what does that mean? It means I've spoken to my co-writers I publish myself. If you want to put this in, you don't then have to call up Warner Chapel. They don't have time mm-hmm. and they don't want to find that suddenly it costs a whole bunch more money. If you're a new songwriter and you want to get on film and television and you own your own publishing, you have room to maneuver quicker and you can make a deal and you can say, no, that's not enough money or yes, I want more money. Or my co-writer says, yes, it's fine. You can pitch it. Well, it's really good to think about that if you are sort of, you know, when you're writing with people who are signed to major publishers tend to gum up the works a little bit more when it comes to syncs because they don't need it as much. But I think they've learned at this point that their writers need the money. So whereas like 20 years ago, my first big Disney thing, the Bambi thing you talked about, my publisher originally, it was BMG at the time, said no. It was a lot of money for me at the time. And I was like, are you are you serious? You're going to say no? And they're like, well, we don't do, we don't say yes to buyouts. We don't allow buyouts. And I was just like, you know, we own your publishing. I was like, anyway, since the time publishers don't say they don't say no they want the sync and sometimes they help pitch the sinks yeah. now mm-hmm. yeah so you have to find out what's right for you and the relationship you want and mm-hmm. how you want to go about things well this has been so great listen to michelle's plea she wants somebody to fill her shoes pretty big shoes to fill but if you're out there and you're passionate and you have good business sense and you're good at speaking and you're a clear communicator and you love creators and you understand that the world is enriched by music and ideas and messages you know where would we be without all the protest songs of the 60s what would history look like without sam cook where would we be without the music and the ideas and the songs that have completely shaped the soundtrack of american history you're so right louise that is exactly the way to put it it is like it's so woven into our historical fabric that like, you know, I can't imagine if like moving forward, there's just silence, right? Like if it's just, there's no music. In AI can't cut it. AI can't cut it. So save the job of songwriter, which is 100% at risk as a job, the songwriter class, that job description, there is no guarantee. In fact, if I were to predict if things just kind of stay on this trajectory 10 years from now it won't be a job anymore that is that is something worth fighting for Mm -hmm. and it is absolutely something worth fighting for like your mother right like where would we be without a job this is somebody's job to write these songs that are our soundtrack to our experience so lose that yeah and the quality of music goes down and the quality of life goes down right so wearesona.com is our website and there is actually a page on the website to, you know, 
apply for the job. But if you know me or if you know Louise and you want to get your resume directly to me. I will say to listeners, find Michelle on the Songwriters of North America website, wearesona.com. If you can't find Michelle there, you can reach us on our socials and you can reach me and I will forward what you send me to Michelle. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Thank you so much, Michelle, for doing this. Pleasure. This was better than I could have hoped for. I'm so glad we did this. Thank you for letting me do it. Like I said, I needed the the brain purge. Seriously. Hopefully this person is out there. Hopefully there's more than just one too. We need board members. We need, you know, we need. Raise them to be a lawyer and a creator. (laughs) I know they exist. I know these people exist. They're out there and they can be board members. They could be executive directors. You know, we exist because there was a vacuum in this space. There were not people fighting the way we were fighting for the people that we're fighting for. So, and that still exists. So we got to keep it going. Well, thank you, Michelle. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you, Michelle, for sharing that incredibly eye-opening interview. And listeners, please let us know if and how this information changes the game for you. If you've been touched by the power of song, and if you believe in the great gift that songwriters share with us, Michelle is looking for someone passionate and organized to share the torch. So please get in touch if that is you. Our next episode will feature singer-songwriter Billy Valentine, who's got a new album, Billy Valentine and the Universal Truth, which conveys outrage, empathy, and celebration of Black America. Junkie walking through the twilight. Covering songs by Gil Scott Heron, Curtis Mayfield, Prince, Stevie Wonder, and War. Hear his first two singles, Home is Where the Hatred Is and My People Hold On, out now. Join us next episode for a great conversation with Billy Valentine. Home is where the hatred is. You've been listening to Song Chronicles. I'm your host and producer. Never, never, never went home again.